Please turn with me to Acts chapter 27 as we continue our study in the book of Acts. We will be in Acts this week and the next couple of weeks. And then, Lord willing, we'll begin our study in the book of Isaiah. And so, again, just encourage you to begin preparing yourself for that, begin reading that through that book. Before we go to Acts 27 today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with us. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us. We are a people who would read stories like this one and somehow place ourselves in a heroic role, somehow seeing ourselves as the hero, seeing ourselves as the Savior. We have one Savior, and that is you. And Lord, we we pray that you would use your word this morning to convict us of our sin, of idolatry, among others, and that you would lead us to your cross. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As I read through this story, it's about a voyage on the sea and about a shipwreck, and so it made me think of the many times in stories and movies that the ocean voyage has been used to capture this change or transition Usually in the hero of the story, there's some sort of something that's going on with them and this voyage is used to make that transition for them. Uh, a couple stories I'll bring out. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, obviously, is a, one that most of us are familiar with. It's a good example <clears throat> where there are lots of transitions, actually, and lots of heroic vignettes in that story. Uh, the The Odyssey course is a famous one that comes to mind as well. Odysseus spending 10 years at sea, returning home from the Trojan War, uh, seeking to claim the throne of Ithaca, and uh, has many trials along the way, and those trials apparently preparing him for becoming king. We could name lots of them, books, movies. Very similar imagery that we have in our text here today, except of course the big difference is, is this really happened? It's a real story. And the hero of the story is not actually aboard the ship at all. In our text today, Paul begins his own sea voyage, this one to Rome. He's been on lots of boats in this book, as we've read through, and he's traveled all over Greece and Asia Minor, and he's hopped on boats and hopped from port to port. But this one is special because it's taking him to what is likely his final destination, the city of Rome. There are some accounts that maybe Paul left Rome after he had been imprisoned, and he was in prison there a second time, we do know. Whether or not that's true, Paul would ultimately die there. He would never return to Jerusalem and see that city again. So in Rome, he will stand trial in front of Caesar for the crimes that he didn't commit. And ultimately, he will die several years later at the hand of Nero. Paul's journey across the ocean here isn't for us to see Paul as some sort of hero or prophet, but quite the contrary. It's for us to see that Paul never really has done anything on his own at all. It's to see the power of Jesus Christ that sustained him all along. Jesus is the hero of the story. Paul is only his servant. Many times in our own journey, we love to put ourselves as the place of the hero. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? For Christians, we know that it's not true, though. 
And if you were to see our lives in focus and you were to see them, this big picture, I think it would be very clear that we aren't the hero at all, but Jesus is the one who stands out. Many times we are the anti-hero of our own story. And so as we look at this, we'll look at three tech, our main sections of the text, we're just breaking it up into sections, the voyage, the storm, and then the shipwreck. And so with that, we'll look at Acts 27 in its entirety. Normally I have you all stand for the reading of God's word, but because we will be taking on a sizable chunk of text this morning, I will allow you to remain seated as I read from God's word. So beginning with the text, Acts chapter 27, starting at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which, this, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the, even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to be put out to sea from there and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called a northeaster, struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered, lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. 
Yet I now urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found it and found twenty fathoms. A little further on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes and tied and that, that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first, or overboard first, and make for the land, and the rest on planks and or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Amen. This is God's word. So a little bit uh, before we go on, in reading through this, you probably made note of all the different locations that they traveled to and from, and all the sailing terms that I really don't even know what many of those are. All the different places, their funny names and their individual cultures and identities, and you could spend literally the rest of your life just studying this one voyage and all the places that Paul went in it. And we don't have that kind of time here today, so I'm only going to hit a few high points as we go through the passage. And remember, from our text over the last two weeks, Paul appealed to Caesar, and that's where he was headed. He was headed to Rome to finally have his case finalized. There were other prisoners with him. One of those was probably Aristarchus that was mentioned there. He, was a, he wasn't a free traveler. Uh, he was another prisoner. Remember back in Ephesus there was a riot and Aristarchus was one that the crowd had gathered so that he was probably taken in as a rabble rouser 
um, <clears throat> he would actually remain with Paul for some time during his Roman imprisonment. Luke was also with Paul, we know, because we see this second-person pronoun again in the text, even starting at verse 1. Luke was not a prisoner here. He would have probably been with Paul in order to care for him, unlike today where prisoners have cable TV and more amenities than a lot of working people. Prisoners in Roman times had nothing unless it was brought to them from the outside. They would starve unless their family brought them food. And so Paul, thankfully, knew a lot of folks in a lot of places and was going to a place where the church had already been established somewhat and he was going to be cared for there. And Luke, of course, an old traveling buddy by this time, had probably even started writing his gospel, maybe even Acts. He had been in Jerusalem and Caesarea, probably gathering information for those documents. We don't know. It sounds like a fun story. But we do know that he is on the boat with them for this voyage, and along with a complement of others. As we read, by the time they crash, there's over 250 on the boat. And that brings me to the first section, the voyage, verses 1 and 2. And when it was decided <clears throat> that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius, and embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus. So Paul and some of his friends, they set sail from Caesarea, headed toward Rome, a journey that would take them six months in all, give or take a few weeks. And I said Paul and some of his friends as if this was some sort of like pleasure cruise, but again, he's a prisoner. He has a Roman centurion with him. Probably lots of Roman soldiers as well. This is, um, they're with him to guard him, to make sure that they're not going to escape. And they're headed to the appeals court, basically. At first, they're in this smaller boat, and you can see in the middle of the story, they're basically weaving in and out of the strong winds that were very common to the Mediterranean Sea at the time. It says that they were under the lee in Cyprus. It's not a term that we use a lot here, basically referring to using the island itself as a wind block. They went on the southern end of Cyprus, kind of using the island to block the winds that were common to that area. Many ships in those days sailing through the coast would have just hugged the coast and kind of hopped from port to port as they sailed along. It wasn't normal to go out into the middle of the Mediterranean and just to sail west or east. They kind of always saw land. It was very easy to navigate that way, and it was very easy to get supplies. And if you look at a map, you can kind of see that's what they did. Uh, I've spent a lot of time looking at the different maps of Paul's voyage here, and it's basically the same. They, they kind of hopped from city to city as they went along until, of course, they weren't hopping from city to city. That was less of on purpose. And they changed boats at a place called Lycia, and they boarded a ship of Alexandria, is what Luke calls it, which was a formal kind of ship, a much larger vessel. You could fit several hundred men inside one of these vessels, and they were usually used to ship grain, which is headed to Italy from one of the Roman provinces, greatly cared for, greatly protected, lots and lots of oars. You can remember, you probably have seen pictures of these boats where they have this hole that is basically for men to to paddle the boat, a few big sails, lots of cargo space, 
for grain and for prisoners. And so you can imagine, this isn't some little shipping or little fishing boat. This is a giant vessel. They make it to a place called Nidus, which is on the extreme southwestern end of Turkey. And from there, they would normally just continue to hug the coast, going up into Greece and whatnot. But because of the strong winds, they sailed directly south to an island called Crete. And on the southern side of Crete, there was a place called Fair Havens. Sounds like a really nice kind of place. Verse 9 tells us, says, Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over. Well, what does this mean? The fast that Luke is referring to here would have been uh, in concert with the Day of Atonement, which is normally in the early fall. In this case, it would have been probably early October. And so why would he bring that out? Well, October is on its way out. That means winter is on its way in. No one sails in the Mediterranean in the winter. It was just kind of a known thing. And so it's very dangerous to be out. They were looking for a place to overwinter and stay. And that brings us to verses 10 and 11, Paul's message. He says this, he says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only to the cargo and the ship, but also to our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now, we don't read here that Paul had received any sort of vision or anything at this point. He does later in the text. But he had spent many days and nights in a boat on the Mediterranean for several years during his missionary journeys. He probably guessed that it wasn't a good idea to continue on at this stage of the game. Yet the centurion who would have been the ranking official on board because he was carrying prisoners and he was on official business, paid attention to his yes-men instead. He wouldn't dare tell the centurion, no, we shouldn't do that, and sent the ship off into what would be a disaster. I think it's an important application for us here. We should always heed wise counsel from those who have been around longer than we have. It could be that Julius... This centurion was an experienced Navy guy, and it could be that Paul didn't know what he was talking about. But that isn't what proves to be the case later on in the story, is it not? In my life, there have been many times where I've heard the wise counsel of others and then went on and did my own thing anyway, usually with disastrous consequences. So many times it was because I didn't want to wait. I was... Impatient. Rather, I wanted to rush things and only to discover over and over, not just once. You'd think we'd learn after once that shortcuts don't really exist. Life is difficult. Sometimes it seems like it's more often hard than it is easy. And we're always looking for the easy way. Usually the easy way comes with the expense of some sort of morality or common sense. And I think especially for the younger people here, listen to your parents. Listen to what they tell you. They mean well. They want you to succeed. When they tell you to do something, it's not because they don't like you. It's because they do like you. When they say things that you don't like, it's not because they want you to be miserable. It's just the opposite. They know. 
that sometimes life can be just like life on the Mediterranean, a winter on the Mediterranean. Sometimes it's better to overwinter in this little place that's called Fairhaven than it is to run the risk of destroying yourself. But sadly, like Julius and a ship full of others, we usually have to learn that lesson the hard way. And that's what we see here in this text. And that brings me to the next section, the storm. There's a lot here as you move through this. Lots of places and happenings, but I want mainly to focus on Paul's announcement to the ship. Again, they attempted to hug the coast to another city. Crete is a really small island in the middle of the Mediterranean, so they're basically trying to hug the southern coast of Crete just to make it to this next little port. But they're unable to do so. This storm that was called a northeaster basically is pushing them away from the land and out to sea. And they stayed there for over two weeks. So if you can kind of picture a map of Europe, and here's Crete, and all the way over here to the northwest is Italy, and they're basically just being pushed more and more out into the open water over the next couple of weeks. Not a good place to, to be. Not seeing the sun or the stars. Not having any sense of direction at all. Back in those days, that was your sense of direction. You knew which way the sun came up. You knew where the stars were supposed to be. That's how you got around. Well, they weren't able to see any of those things because of the, the storm. And so they were basically adrift. For several weeks, not being able to see anything. You get the idea, particularly there in verse 20, they feel like all hope of being saved was completely abandoned. This is Luke speaking. Even as an experienced captain with no bearing, there's no right or wrong direction. You're just adrift. Not good. A lot of times life can get that way, even as believers we lose sight of the foundation of our faith, which is the truth about Jesus Christ found in his word, we are easily set adrift. That's exactly what happens here. And then Paul has this vision. Look with me at verses 21 and following. What does he basically say? First off, he says, you should have listened to me. But then he says, verse 23, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. And he told this to these men. We are going to be safe. Things are going to happen exactly like I just said. You just have to trust me. And as they go on, some of them even tried to escape. They tried to lower boats down and to escape to land. They saw, they figured the land was coming. He said, don't leave. You have to remain on board. Even though it's going to be tough, everyone's going to be safe unless you leave. Why? Because Paul trusted his Lord. He trusted that God was going to do this, the thing that he said he was going to do. How could he have that kind of trust in God? Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Paul wasn't there, neither was Luke, nor were anybody on board likely. And what we're getting ready to read happened. But surely stories of this have been passed around. Mark chapter 4 starting at verse 35. 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side, Jesus speaking to his disciples. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. This is the disciples, the ones that had seen him do lots of things. And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? It's pretty incredible. Who is this that the wind and sea obey him? Well, he's the same one that told Paul that he was going to make it to Rome. He's the same one that promised that everyone on the boat was going to make it. Did he stop the storm this time? No. He destroyed everything, the ship, the cargo, everything, except for the people on board. How can he do that? Well, he's the one that said to the ocean, stop. And it listened. The wind stopped. The waves stopped. Every single molecule of anything there stopped. And they listened and they obeyed this man. They do as their creator bids them do. That's what they do. So what makes you think, brothers and sisters in Christ, that God does not have control in your own situation? What makes you think that God isn't capable of handling whatever is going on in your life? What makes you think that God doesn't have your best interests and isn't capable of carrying that out however he sees fit. What if God had meant for Paul to die on that boat? What if he had meant for the story of Paul's life to end here unceremoniously in the middle of the Adriatic Sea, the end of the book of Acts? What if he had meant for Paul to minister in obscurity like so many Christians have done over the years? Since the resurrection until now. Then so be it. The Lord is good. But know this. We know that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. For the good of those who are called according to his purpose. To those he calls he will ultimately glorify all those that he calls. He means to bring us home. No matter what kind of storm lies in between ultimately we'll be with him in glory. No matter what. And that brings me to this last point, the shipwreck itself. Verse 33. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense without food and have taken nothing. He encourages them to take some food. They hadn't eaten for days, probably because they were just seasick. I can't imagine being tossed around like a bobber in the middle of the ocean. They ate a bit, they were strengthened, and they threw off the rest of the cargo, the grain. 
The next day comes and they see this unknown land. Next week we'll find out that that unknown land is the small island of Malta. Sorry to spoil the surprise. It's a tiny island about 50 miles off the coast of Sicily. They run the ship into a reef and the ship begins to break up and all 276 passengers that are on board survive. They all swim to shore. Initially, they were going to kill the prisoners but to keep them from escaping, but Julius changes that and saves them. All 276 prisoners are safe because Paul said they would be, right? Because Paul stood up and told everybody to calm down and trust the Lord, and now they're all safe. Because Paul's the hero of the story, right? No, because God is good. Paul will see Caesar because God is good. The church will persevere through rampant persecution under Nero in the coming years because God is good. Sometimes people will say that the early church was built on the blood of the martyrs. You've probably heard that. That must have been on the shelves in the first and second century Hallmark stores. The church is built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, the church is built. Paul was a willing servant, not a hero. Translate that to our own lives and to our own situations. God said that his word would accomplish that which he purposes it to do. So what can you believe concerning the preaching of the gospel? That it will work. You don't have to sugarcoat it. You don't have to make it more relevant or any other silly word. You can preach the plain truth of the gospel and know that God is good and that he keeps his promises. God, or Jesus said that I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what can we believe concerning his church? That God will grow his church. God might not grow this church. He might not grow the ARP anymore but he will build his church and the gates of hell will come crumbling down Jesus said I will never leave you or forsake you so what can I believe concerning my life he's right here with me no matter what this year has brought no matter what the next year is going to bring he will be here he's not going anywhere we read from the 23rd Psalm this morning. Maybe he will lead us to green pastures and make us to lie down. Maybe he will lead us beside the quiet, still waters. Maybe he'll lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe we'll have a little bit of both. We don't know. Whatever the case, he will be here. He will always be here because one day we'll be with him in glory. And so in conclusion, it's likely that you and I will never experience a shipwreck, but we'll all experience difficulties in this life, every one of us. <clears throat> Let us first rest upon the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. He alone can save. He is the hero of the story. Let us rest in him. Also, let us run the race together, knowing that we worship a God who's always good. And he always keeps his promises.
Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, it's not because of quote unquote heroes of the faith that we are here today, but it's because you, of what you did. You are the author of our faith. You are the perfecter of our faith. You are the keeper of your church. You are the shepherd of your flock. And we see here in this passage that you took care of your servant and you continue to do so today. So Lord, we pray that in those moments that we forget forget this, that you would help us. Lord, lead us to repentance. Lord, lead us to conviction of that sin. Guide us in your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.